guys pass the plates. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, I share my own kind of goals and things that I'm working on as a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a biblical word that means someone who's a learner, who's intentionally trying to learn from someone else how to live their life. We might think of a disciple to discipler relationship, kind of like a mentoring relationship, but in the Bible, it meant something much more intense. It wasn't kind of a hobby. It was something that it was, it was a label that identified who you were as a person. I am this person's disciple. So when I call myself a disciple of Jesus, I need to be careful not to do that flippantly or in a way that makes it seem like Jesus and his kingdom call on my life is something that I'm dabbling in. And so what I do every month is I sit down and I say, God, uh, how are you challenging me to grow heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus said the most important commandment is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I break that up into, I define those kind of categorically as heart, relationships, soul, prayer, life of worship, mind, understanding, biblical worldview, deepening my, uh, the scope of my understanding of God's truth, and strength is serving and giving. And so for December, what I'm doing is I'm learning to be more honest and cast my cares upon God. I went to a vocational excellence course. One of the things in really short, just shortly I'll share, uh, did the Enneagram. I'm a type three. That means my root sin is deceit. Um, for me, the deceit doesn't express itself as overt deceit, where I'm going out of my way to intentionally lie to people. Where I will be untruthful and where I will be deceitful, my temptation is to not share honestly about how things are affecting me. So I'll carry other people's burdens, but I won't necessarily be honest about the burdens that I feel like I need help with. And that was a big thing, uh, a big breakthrough for me in that course. And I've been working on that with, with, with Heather, with my wife, and, uh, and a few key relationships in my life. And saying, this is, this is a, a fault line for me. And I need help to be able to share honestly from my heart. And not just be always the person who's willing to listen and care for other people. But is giving other people the chance to do that. And also giving God the chance to do that. To do that. Because when I looked at my prayer life, I realized I kind of just spend a lot of my time praying for other people. And yet, you know, uh, Peter's epistle says, cast your, your cares on God because he cares for you. But I'd rather pray for other people than I would about myself. And that's another way that I can really, in a strange way, be deceitful before God, where I'm not being honest before God about the things that I'm carrying. So I'm trying to cultivate the practice of doing that. My wife and I are going through a book that I got from the Evangelical Covenant Church last year called Joyful Journaling. She's almost done it. She said it's amazing. And so I'm going through that this month. This Tuesday night, I'm leading a workshop here on spiritual journaling for self-care and spiritual growth. Not quite based out of this book. It's based on something else that I've been exposed to, but that's happening here at 7.30. Journaling is something that I think is important, but I find it very difficult to do. And I'm just going to be sharing a tool that really is quite simple, but everyone can use as a way to uh, kind of grow as kind of a hybrid of prayer, journaling, introspection, so that's happening this Tuesday here at the church at 7.30. Mind, I, I'm finishing up my course materials and my essay for my vocational excellence course, and that, that's been really, really positive. And strength, this is the one I always, oh, I'm so weak in this area. It's not that I don't want to serve in tangible ways. I just often don't think of, it doesn't come naturally to me to see opportunities. So I was praying, and I was like, God, what is something that it just needs to be done this time of year, and even something that I just hate doing, and just show me how I could do it and, and love my neighbors through it. And right away, I just got snow shoveling. And I do, I hate snow shoveling so much. I, we got this little duplex, and part of, honestly, my reason for getting it is it has a really small little driveway. It's basically just a square of concrete, so that it makes my life easier. 
And, uh, and I still manage to procrastinate and put it off, right? Isn't it true? That's terrible. It t- probably takes me eight minutes to do the whole thing, and I'll still be like, oh, so much snow. But I've, so I've really challenged myself this month to say, not only am I going to keep on top of my own driveway, I really want to be intentional in neighbors and neighbors here at the church. Uh, when I come here at the church, there's a snow shovel here, and I, I just want to do that act of service. That's good for me uh, as a mode where I'll talk and pray and reflect and think about serving other people in those kind of practical ways much more than I'll actually do it. So this month, that's my strength goal. So I'd really encourage you, you can use this uh, framework as a way for thinking about your own discipleship journey and why it's important for you to be challenging yourself in different dimensions. Um, If you don't use this, that's fine. But I I think you need to use something. You have to have some kind of plan, some kind of kingdom ambition for your life. Being a disciple means you're trying to follow Jesus closely. It's not kind of like, well, if it works, then we'll see, and yeah, I'll let, the, let the month kind of play out and see what happens. It's take up your cross daily and follow me. And I want to be intentional with that, and as your pastor, I want to challenge you to be intentional in that area too. And if you ever need ideas or help on how to do this, please email me or connect with me over coffee, and I'll help you work out some ideas that are customized for you, that are where you're at, that are accessible, but also challenging. I think that's, re- that's really, really important. Okay, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can find it in your Bibles. It's also going to be on the screen. Matthew is one of the gospel writers, and he's writing here about how the birth of Jesus came about. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until after she had given birth to a son. She gave him, sorry, and he gave him the name Jesus. Uh, One of the great responsibilities faced by every parent is the naming of your child. Every culture in human history has attached significance to the name of a child, but ancient cultures did so in a way that was even more intense than we might be accustomed to. See, in ancient cultures, one's name was understood to be a reflection of one's character and even their destiny. So the naming of someone was about really cementing someone's identity in a way that they and the community and before God could recognize who they were. Their name was a shorthand that gave you a handle on understanding who this person was, and it also helped you to understand the hopes that were embedded in that child from the parents in the naming of that child. Now, we don't probably empower the naming of a child 
to that extent in our culture today. But if you've had children, grandchildren, friends who've had kids, you understand that parents still take a lot of time to pick out just the right name for their child. And it's usually a name that conveys at least a vision for what the parents want for that child's life. So, for example, when we named our son Brayden, we did so because that name means brave. And that was something that, uh, well, actually means broad and brave. We thought genetically he'll be broad like me and then hopefully braver than I am. And uh, we, we really hoped that that bravery, that broadness and depth of character would be something that he would display throughout his life for God's glory. Um, one of my barbers' uh, given name is Rainbow, right? Which is a totally Nelson name. It doesn't get any more Nelson than that. And, you know, that was chosen for her to reflect the fact that her parents desired that she live a colorful, nonconformist life. See, names give us a window into the hopes and dreams that were placed in that child by their parents. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that when this word, this pre-incarnate, before the word became flesh, it existed with God. It was with God, but it was God. John 1 taught, taught us that last week. That although the word made flesh would be called, meaning it would be described as Emmanuel, that's not what it would be named it would be named Jesus. And actually from that name alone, just knowing that about the Christmas story, that this baby born in a manger is named Jesus, reveals a tremendous amount about who Jesus is and what his mission is and what the whole purpose and point of Christmas is. It's a really loaded name. Jesus is the English form of the Greek word Jesus. The Greek word Jesus is a Greek transliteration, they look into another language and say, what's the equivalent of that language, of that word, that name in our language? So, Jesus is a transliteration of the Aramaic word Yeshua, which is a contracted form of the Hebrew word Yeshua. That, if it sounds phonetically close to a name that we might know, it should a little bit, because that is the Hebrew name that if you're translating from the Old Testament is translated Joshua. And Yeshua, Joshua, means salvation or Yeshua saves, God saves, Yahweh, Shua saves. So Jesus's Hebrew name, and you'll hear this sometimes, is Yeshua, is Joshua. His name literally means salvation. It literally means God saves. Now, knowing this helps us to see that Jesus' birth is set within a larger story within which our individual stories are supposed to integrate and find their place. If you've heard me speak for a while now, one of the themes that I'll come back to again and again, because I think it's helpful and easy to remember and and really, really uh, just simple, is that you can summarize the whole Bible with three words. Creation, Come on. Oh, not cross. We were thinking, oh, I've, I've, I've given you some quick, easy, three-word answers to things. But the narrative of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption. The whole biblical story in a nutshell. God created, it was good. Um, man has rebelled. Now we live in a fallen state where there's a twinning of the goodness of God with the poison toxicity of sin. 
But God hasn't left us in that state. God has been actively working to redeem and to restore us, to rescue us out of that place. One of the best pictorial representations of those three words and of the biblical story uh, is this art by Sister Grace Remington. Uh, Mary cons- uh, Eve is Comforted by Mary. That's the title of it. And I really like this picture. It's one of my favorite pictures to come back to. I usually come back to it this time of year and reflect on it and think through it, right? You've got the allusion to the Garden of Eden and obviously um, Eve holding the fruit close to her chest, right? She's taken in the lie that if she just did this, she would be like God, right? We see her downcast, sin, shame, alienation. Um, there's a, you know, the brown tone, you know, from dirt you were formed to dirt and dust you will return. There's a sense of decay, of death. You see the serpent coiled around her, and yet God hasn't left her in this place. There's something good that has been corrupted, but now God is sending a redeemer. And through this redeemer, the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. That's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Genesis 3. So this, to me, is a pictorial representation of the whole story of Scripture, that God created a good world. We've messed it up, but God isn't content to just let that play out. He's changing the script. And he wrote himself into the story as a way of saying, I've come to rescue and redeem. I'm going to get this thing back on track. My creation and, and these humans that I've created as my image bearers are too valuable for me to me to just let them continue to labor under the penalty and power of sin. So within this story of, of Scripture, even if you don't know it well, um, there's this person that shows up um, named Joshua in the Old Testament. And this Joshua is kind of a military leader. He's given the mantle of leadership um, that when Moses dies, he's going to be the one who leads Israel into the promised land. And so right away, when we hear the angels say that you're going to name this Messiah, this saving one, Jesus, we think Joshua. And we connect Jesus' story back to Joshua's story. This is going to be a new Joshua This is going to be a new successor to Moses, right? Moses is the embodiment of God's law. Remember last week in John 1, the law was given through Moses, but grace and and truth came through Yeshua, Mashiach, Joshua the Messiah. So this is going to be a successor to Moses who's going to lead people into the true promised land, the kingdom of God, starting to be established now, but one day to be fully established. But there's one important difference between this new Joshua and this previous one. The first Joshua was a military conqueror who was tasked with obliterating the enemies of God as it reflected itself in pagan, anti-God societies, Canaanites being the big one. This new Joshua hasn't come to conquer the enemies of God in terms of people. This new Joshua has come to conquer the capital E enemies of God, like the actual real threat, the real problem, which is sin and death. And so when the word becomes flesh and is named Yeshua, is named Jesus, salvation, it's because the Bible wants us to see that this Jesus is literally going to be the embodiment of God's saving grace. This is what salvation is going to look like in the flesh, literally. And he's come to save people, to deliver them out of wilderness wandering, bondage, slavery, and into the promised land, the land where God is king and the way things 
are supposed to be play out because God rules and reigns, that he's the king, and things are uh, set right. And so all of this can strike our hearts as being pretty comforting. That's pretty neat. That, I connect a lot of that with the Christmas story. Like, yeah, like that's kind of the warm fuzzies. That's awesome. That's really, really beautiful. But when we stop to really consider what it means that salvation came down from heaven, it actually reveals something really, really discomforting about humanity in our predicament. Frederick Buchner, who's a great Christian uh, author and poet, this was his reflection on the incarnation. This is his take. He says, The word became flesh. Ultimate mystery born with a skull you could crush with one hand. Incarnation. That's not tame. That is not beautiful. It is uninhabitable terror. It is unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. Agonized laboring led to it. Vast upheavals of intergalactic space-time split apart, a wrenching and tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. You can only cover your eyes and shudder before it before this God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed puts it, came down from heaven. And then he says, came down from heaven. Only then do we dare uncover our eyes and see what we can see. It is the resurrection and the life that she, meaning Mary, holds in her arms. And it is the bitterness of death that he takes at her breast. For Buchner, there was a terrifying angle to the incarnation. It wasn't just comfort. There was discomfort there. Why? What's he getting at? Well, think of it this way. What does it mean that God had to intervene in history in this way? What are the implications of that? If God has to intervene and has to incarnate himself in a once in an existence um, event to come in human form, what does that show us about ourselves and about the state that we're in? At least two things. And the incarnation shows us these things supremely. Number one, that we are lost and we are hopeless without God. We're, we're lost and we're hopeless without God. God has to intervene. And think about an intervention. Have you, have you guys ever seen that show, Intervention? They had a show where they filmed people <laughs> doing interventions. You don't do interventions when the problem is small, right? Like I said last week, if spiritually speaking, your hair is just a little messed up, you don't need an intervention. You just need a mentor to come along and say, your hair is a little messed up. Here's how you should do it. Great, fix, we're done. Move on with your life. An intervention happens when things are out of control and the person is not even able to see uh, what has happened to them hasn't been able to see the addiction that has taken over their lives, can't stop, maybe doesn't even want to stop or even curtail the, the behavioral patterns which are pulling them down and leading to a wake of destruction. And so if God has to intervene in this kind of way, if the law wasn't enough, I'll just give them some religious instruction. If that wasn't enough, then our problem can't be small either. And if we think that our problem is kind of small, it's not a big deal. Yeah, like I make some mistakes, but fundamentally I'm pretty okay. 
the incarnation has to challenge that by saying, are we like those people who right before the intervention think they're just showing up to like a regular gathering? Because they're blind to their own depth of dysfunction and brokenness. Interventions only happen in the most extreme circumstances where micro-adjustments to behavior or attitudes or paradigms aren't actually going to do the trick. And see, this is important because if you see the fundamental problem in your life as being very, very small, spiritually I have messed up hair, then the solution God provides, you will see that as small too. Oh, that's neat. God did something in the manger and nativity, and that, that's neat. And Jesus and the teachings, that kind of whole kit and caboodle, I like that. That's kind of, it's cool. Thanks, God. You give God a little fist bump. Thanks for the help. Appreciate it. But that will mean that you'll see the gospel as something very small. And I, I think this thesis is right. If you see the gospel as something very small, the ultimate solution that God, what God is doing in his life, death, and resurrection, if you see that as something small, you will live out a very small Christian life. You won't live a big and bold and robust and rich and deep Christian life because God provided like a helpful little small solution to what was kind of a little small problem. And when you sing songs like we sang this morning, or you sing Amazing Grace, you will never sing those songs with tears in your eyes. Ever. Because it was like, thanks God, appreciate it. Thanks for the, thanks for the hand up. But if we see our problem as big, and our solution having to come from outside of us, salvation has to come down, Yeshua, God saves, has to come in bodily form to do something in his life, death, and resurrection to save us and to solve that problem, now we're challenged to rethink everything. And that can be terrifying to people. And that's what Buchner's getting at. That's actually a scary thing that God has had to do this. If the claim is true, if God actually has stepped into human history in this way, has revealed himself in this way, nobody in this room, nobody in this world gets to kind of hear that and be like, oh, that's kind of neat, okay, and then move on with their life. This is a claim that demands you either completely reject it because you think it's patently absurd or if there's even a kernel of truth to it I have to begin to rethink the entire trajectory of my life in light of it so we're lost and hopeless without God um, God has to intervene right and, and the other thing that's important here is to is, and maybe this is one of the reasons why Buchner says it's, it's terrifying is that what this shows us is that religion is just not really going to help that much Right? The incarnation spells the end of religion. And by religion, what I mean is any system that comes from human ideas of if we have these rituals and these practices and these behaviors and these religious observances and we do these good things and we avoid these bad things, if we can kind of just really double down on that system out of good intention, then we can clean ourselves up and we can save ourselves. We can merit ourselves into the kind of life God wants. We can merit ourselves into heaven. We can earn we can fix ourselves. So I'm using religion in a really broad way to refer to any system where we just try and receive instruction, do the best we can, and then hopefully at the end of our life, good outweighs the bad, and we get into heaven. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, I think really honestly, fundamentally believe that is what Christianity is. And it's exactly the opposite. See, religion is about what you have to do in order to secure God's favor, God's love, God's grace in your life. If you do these things, you do them well, 
We're never really told exactly the, the balance, but you know, it's at least got to be more good than bad, at least it's kind of a loose karmic idea. Then you can secure these things. The gospel's totally different. Salvation came down, and through his life, death, and resurrection, God secured for you what you could not have secured for yourself. And he did that independent of any good things that you think you were bringing to the table. He did this not in response to your goodness, but prompted by his own. See, if religious instruction was all that we needed, Jesus didn't have to come, and he certainly didn't have to die. But he did come, and that means religion, human strategies of how to fix ourselves spiritually, can't save people. Now, I don't want to say the law isn't good. Religious instruction, certainly the Old Testament laws, Jesus gives laws, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law. Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with this. But he has come to reveal that it's not sufficient. I religiously instruct my children. I, I teach them God's word, not as a way to say, you do these things and you'll be loved by God. But I say, as Christians, we're loved by God. Now we look into the law and say, how do we live a life that is honoring to God? God shows us how. So we're doing it out of different motivations, not to secure God's love, but out of an expression of having received God's love by grace. So I don't want to say that rules or religious observance is a negative thing. It's just what the incarnation shows is that is powerless to save us. If, if you're trusting in good works and pure motives to ultimately fix you spiritually, the Bible would say you're kind of polishing deck chairs on the Titanic. This is, this is not going to help. There's a real law of diminishing returns happening here. The incarnation is kind of terrifying because it dispels the illusion that we're kind of okay and we're just kind of a pat on the back away from God from getting things back on track. Our problem is much more severe than that. Isaiah 53 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. We need spiritual regeneration. We need spiritual renewal from the inside out. We can't facilitate our own salvation. We can't save ourselves in any meaningful sense of the word. So the incarnation shows us that we are lost and we are hopeless without God. But secondly, and this is just hugely, hugely important, the incarnation shows us that we and you are extraordinarily valuable to God. Extraordinarily valuable to God. I, cannot, I can't stress that enough. God does not have to intervene. Good creation, humanity, essentially says, God, I'm going to do my own thing. Thanks, but no thanks. Curse and poison and toxicity of sin takes over and permeates everything. God could have said, okay. God doesn't have to intervene. There was nothing inevitable about Christmas from a human point of view. God doesn't, God doesn't have to do it, but he's compelled to do it. St. Athanasius in his work on the incarnation says, he doesn't want to say it, it, it could have never happened because he says God loves us too much. Of course it was going to happen. Of course God's going to come. Of course salvation is going to come down. Because even though as a humanity we have totally rejected God, that rejection, our sin, our brokenness, our dysfunction, whatever language you want to use, none of that can overwhelm or eclipse God's deep, passionate, um, voracious love for us. He values us too much to say, wow, they're too far gone. I loved them up to this point. I was willing to help, but then they went this far. I've washed my hands of them. The love of God compelled the incarnation. 
Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our lives back together. Jesus died for us before we even understood why we needed him to die for us. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we love God. We don't, we don't understand what love is by looking at how we love God. We understand what love is by looking at how God loved us. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We were so lost. We were so helpless without God. But God loves us so much that he intervened. He came to seek and save you. He drew close. And so it's no wonder on reflecting on that, Paul says in Romans 8, what should we say in response to this? When you look at what God has done, what can we say in response to this? If God is for us, who, who is against us? If the most if the creator of heaven and earth, all things, is for us, that even when he was justified in not intervening and letting us taste the bitter end of our full self-destruction, he could have done that, and he would have been justified in doing that, but he didn't because of his great love for us. If that God is fighting for us, if that love is willing to go to the lengths of such condescension, we'll learn about this next week, Philippians 2, emptying himself of his entitlement and the rights and privileges that come from being God and empties himself and becomes fully human and fully God. What? If that creator is for us, what is against us? Who can stand against us? The incarnation reveals that you are lost and hopeless without God, but that you are supremely valuable to God. I want to close with ending on, uh, on this thing. How does that connect to your life right now? Um, obviously it does in a big picture way. I mean, this, this is kind of framing the gospel one-on-one, right? We're lost and we need God, but God loves us and he's made a way, the incarnation. But how does, how does the incarnation, how does this change the fact that Jesus was Yeshua, was the one who saves? How does that change how you live this afternoon? When you leave this place, how does this idea and this truth transform how you live very practically? How's it going to transform how you live tomorrow when you wake up and you go to school or to go to work? At least two ways. If we're living in light of the resurrection, the first thing that we need to be committed to is just rejecting religion. We, d- we need to just give up on self-made strategies of trying to willpower our way into getting things right and putting ourselves back on track. That's not the source of the solution. Good works, no matter how good they are, they can't save you. We need spiritual regeneration. We need new life. You're not going to revolutionize your life by trying to drum up more religious willpower or just double down on religious obedience. That's not going to lead to the transformation in the life that you're longing for. It'll lead to behavior modification. might even lead to some good things. Um, It's good to be good, but it's insufficient to be good in the sense of the kind of life God wants to bring us into. Now, some people might hear that and say, what are you saying? As I'm a Christian, I don't need to worry about trying to be good or anything? No. You are saved by grace for good works. I don't say, oh, God saved me. That's awesome. I don't have to shovel my neighbor's driveway. I can just be lazy and selfish. No. God saves me 
and then teaches me his laws, pours his love into my life. Like we said last week from Leviticus, I give you my laws so that I teach you how to walk upright. I teach you how to be a human being again. I'm renewing the image of God in you, Jeff. I've saved you for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to do good works. But that's different than saying, I'm going to try and be good, I'm going to try and be good, I'm going to try and do all these works in order to secure a relationship with God, secure my salvation, secure forgiveness. All of that gets front-ended because of what Jesus has done as a gift. And now, guided by God's word and God's spirit, I live out good works to proclaim the goodness of God. So when people say, oh, Jeff, you must be super close to God because like, you're a pastor and you do all these good things. It's like, no, I do all these good things and I'm a pastor because God has drawn me close to him. It's like, he did it, and now I'm just trying to live faithfully in response to it. So we need to reject religion. And the second thing we need to do, here's really practical, probably for everybody. The incarnation, if, if you want to live in light of the incarnation, it means you have to reject pessimism and cynicism. You just have to totally reject those things. Those, those don't have a place in a Christian's life, I would argue. If, if your imagination and your heart has been captured by the truth of the incarnation, right? If God and Jesus Christ came to save you from both the penalty of sin, which is alienation and judgment, alienation from God, judgment uh, from God, not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Sin is an agent which um, poisons your relationships, poisons your understanding of who God is, who you are, your relationships, and how you're supposed to be in this world. If God came to save you from the penalty and power of sin, that means that Christmas creates all kinds of new possibilities for your life because you're not defined by your sin any longer. You're not defined by your shame any longer. You're not defined by your inadequacies any longer. You're not defined by your mistakes any longer. Those aren't the core of your identity. Your core identity is no longer sinner. Your core identity is now saint. Paul constantly talking to people who have turned their lives over to Jesus. And he doesn't call them sinners on your way to sainthood. Just keep doing some good. He's like, you're saints. Because Jesus has given you that identity. He has taken your sin. He has given you his righteousness. You now have a new life. And the incarnation means that God came to change your life. And I don't mean change it in some kind of superficial way. I mean in the way that we all long for. The kind of marriages we want and the kind of intimacy and friendships that we want and the kind of um, engagement with the world through our work that we want and the kind of purpose that we want to wake up to every day. That's part of the reason why God came, to put a new spirit in us to open up a new future for us, to give us an inheritance by faith, to grow us up into maturity in Christ. And that means that if there are places in your life, if you're like me right now, real time, and there are places in your life that are dark and that seem hopeless and that you are pessimistic towards, you are cynical towards, the way things are, you, you look at those places and you just kind of say, I guess that is what it is. Like, what are you going to do? You have to confront that lie. And you have to understand what the incarnation implicitly says to those places is you are not allowed to give up hope in those situations. Because if God came to save and rescue you from the power and penalty of sin, if he intervened in your life on that level, if God is for you to that degree, why, why do you think he's not for you in that way, way minor thing? That feels real and big to you. But in the cosmic scale... It's just a natural, of course, if God took care of this, he's going to want to take care of this. Is there an area in your life, maybe there's several, where you feel 
like you just honestly want to give up. You don't think that change is possible. Good, good, healthy change. Are there relationships that you believe are beyond repair? Are there realities that you just kind of shrug your shoulders at and adopt kind of a defeatist attitudes toward? The posture of our heart must be to reject that. We have to reject that posture in light of the incarnation. Because God wants to bring new life, new hope, new healing, new joy into those areas. And I can say that with confidence and with boldness because Paul says it. What then shall we say in response to all these things? When you consider what God has done, that salvation has come, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? The incarnation should obliterate the idea that God is content with you existing within a sinful status quo, within a hopeless status quo, within a dark and diminished and suppressed brokenness. He came to save you from sin's penalty and sin's power in your daily life. You're lost and you're hopeless without God. Just ditch religion. Just let it go. But you are supremely valuable to God. And so embrace Jesus. Jesus. Embrace Yeshua. Embrace salvation and the power of his gospel. And then after embracing him, follow him, heart, soul, mind, and strength into a new life where real change and transformation is possible by his word, through his spirit. Let's pray. God, as we stand now to worship you, I recognize there are people standing who, they may, this may be the first time they've heard something like this, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just move in and through their hearts to help them make sense of what they've heard. And for us who have maybe heard some of these words organized in a slightly different way, but we've heard this before from within a church, from someone else, that that message wouldn't get lost in us, that our hearts would be good soil, that this gospel, this good news of the incarnation, that this one named Jesus who's come to save us, that a new measure of the glory of that truth would take root in our hearts, God. And not just in our hearts as an experience of, oh, that's beautiful, but in our lives as an expression of new life in you so that we can love you and serve those around us in witness to that truth. Amen. Uh, just before I close, I'm going to close with a grace for a meal downstairs. So when you go downstairs, you can just start eating. And then I'll do a benediction. But before I do, um, there's going to be two people who will be available for prayer just over in that kind of back cubby over there. If you'd like prayer for anything, it doesn't have to be directly related to something that I said this morning. But if it is, or if it isn't, and you just feel like, I want to just someone to pray for me. I don't even know why even necessarily. That's totally great and we want to invite you to come. Just come directly uh, after, and uh, there'll be people there that will love to pray with you. God, as we 
have broken bread around your table. We now break bread with each other. And may we do so out of a spirit of unity and love and appreciation for who you are. And may the love that you have for us, may you plant that love in our hearts for one another so that we can be disciples who are known um, not just by our love for you, but how that expresses itself and how we love and cherish one another. We thank you for the food that we're about to receive and, and the hands that have prepared it, God. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may the name of Jesus, Yeshua, become sweet to your soul. May you taste of the love that compelled his rescue of you, and may you embrace his forgiveness and grace and follow him into the terrifyingly beautiful adventure of discipleship. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. See you downstairs.